0: This is a quote-unquote special episode of Comfort and Death and Darkness. It's really only special because it's just me this week. Charlie is off down in the south of England on Family Matters. So I've had to think of some ideas to do without her. And so the ABCs of Death and Darkness are on hold for this week. So I started looking for things to do. And that's when I thought of something that got me hooked on the creepy genre to begin with. I've collected, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, for you, a collection of some of the creepiest, scariest, most upsetting recordings around the world. Like I've just said, some of these are creepy, some are terrifying, and some are upsetting. They're not for the faint-hearted. So, with that in mind, here's this week's episode of Comfort Death and Death in Darkness, the creepiest recordings. The Aztec whistle of death Alright, so, first up, lots of cultures have many unique practices that set them apart from others. Now, here's something terrifying. When scientists first discovered the human remains in an Aztec temple, they found that a skeleton had a clay, skull-shaped whistle in both of its hands. These whistles were just simply collected. No one blew into one for about 15 years. When someone finally did, the sound that came out will make your spine tingle. It's been said that if death had a sound, this would be it. Roberto Velasquez, a 66 year old mechanical engineer, devoted his entire career to recreating these sounds, producing hundreds of whistle replicas. Here is the sound of the whistle of death. And that's not all. This one sounds even scarier. I'm not entirely sure what this one's supposed to resemble, but it looks pretty scary, so be sure to check the companion pack for a photo of both of them. One more thing, it's believed that these whistles were blown during a human sacrifice ceremony. Knowing this, you have to wonder, were these blown during the last days of the Aztecs? That's just another creepy thought for you right there. Led Zeppelin, a satanic love letter. Alright, this one is chilling, especially when I originally wrote this script in the dark at 12am with the wind howling outside. Led Zeppelin is one of the most beloved bands of all time, with their most famous song, Stairway to Heaven, actually being banned from a lot of guitar shops in the UK, because the workers were sick of hearing people play it on their merchandise. If you think that sounds familiar, it's probably because you saw it on Wayne's World. Yeah, that joke is actually shrouded in a lot of truth. But, that's not what this entry is about. This is about the song Stairway to Heaven itself, more specifically, its lyrics. Even more specifically, it said that Led Zeppelin included a message to the devil himself. So, this is the fifth verse of Stairway to Heaven. Just to reiterate, the lyrics were as follows. If there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. And it makes me wonder. Standard stuff from Zeppelin. But if you play that section backwards, you get this instead You <laughs> Now, that might be a bit difficult to hear, but I'm gonna play back each line there after telling you what you should be hearing. Firstly, you should hear, here's to my sweet Satan.
1: <laughs>
0: Next, you'll hear, the one whose little path would make me sad, whose power is Satan. After that, you will hear, He'll give, He'll give you
1: 666.
0: And finally, you'll hear, There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer. Sad, Satan. If this was put in here on purpose, then it's a technique known as backmasking. It's exactly as it sounds. Something sounds one way forwards with the intent of it sounding a certain way when played backwards. People have been accused of hiding messages in songs this way since the dawn of the age of music that we're in today. Zeppelin themselves, and people associated with them, have came out in the past and said that this is complete garbage. That this was not intentional. That this was simply a happy coincidence. But when you think about it, isn't that exactly what someone who wouldn't want you to think that would say? There is sound. For this one, I'm not going to give much of an introduction. I'm just going to play two audio clips. Here's the first one. bad, right? Here's the second one. It's a lot more chilling. Guess what they were? Well, the first clip was the sounds of Jupiter and the second was the sound of Saturn. That's not an artsy name for something. That's literally what these two clips are. The sounds of the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn. Remember that iconic line from Alien, in space no one can hear you scream? Well, it turns out that space isn't actually just a vacuum of nothing. The Juno spacecraft recorded the sounds of Jupiter, and the Kasani spacecraft recorded the sounds of Saturn. Jupiter isn't so bad, but the sounds of Saturn are spine-tinglingly chilling. I'm not sure if it's because we've always thought of space as being an empty void of nothingness or if it's because of the endless possibilities that this could implicate. It's creepy nonetheless. Especially when considering the fact that the Kasani actually picked up the sounds of Saturn by tuning into it. That's right, Saturn emits radio waves, and the second clip is what was picked up. Even if we are alone in the universe, it seems as though the planets are actually trying to communicate. The original Night Stalker voicemail. Now, this wouldn't be an episode of Comfort and Death and Darkness without the mention of the man with the six names. The East Area Rapist, the Visalia Ransacker, the Diamond Knot Killer, the East Bay rapist the original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer, and, going for a seventh name, his actual name, Joseph James D'Angelo. Pretty much everyone knows what this guy did, but in case you don't, he has a quick rundown. Between the years of 1974 and 1986, the Golden State Killer committed over 100 burglaries, over 50 rapes, and 13 murders. D'Angelo's trial still hasn't even begun yet, and while it's pretty much obvious that it was him that perpetrated these crimes, you never know with these sorts of things. And the 13 murders and quote-unquote over 50 rapes are only what we know about. There is every chance that there is way more. In 1977, Just four years into his 12-year run of terror, the killer left a voicemail on the answering machine of a victim. It's quite possibly one of the most chilling recordings ever. And the scariest part is that the person who left the recording was able to keep on killing for an additional eight years and would remain on the loose until 2018. The following is the full recording of the voicemail message. (laughs) As he just heard, he was saying he was going to kill the recipient of the call over and over again and did so in a whisper. Why would he have been doing it in a whisper? Was he doing it in an environment that meant he could have been caught? Joseph James D'Angelo in 1973 was married to a woman named Sharon Marie Huddle before separating with her in 1991. Was Sharon home at the time that he made this call? Was this even him? Could this have just been a voicemail left during the height of the original Night Stalker's string of crimes? Well, yes, this actually was him. How do we know? Well, the person that he called would go on to become one of his victims. This is one of the scariest recordings ever. Think about how you would feel if this landed in your voicemail box. Mid-2000s, Australian ABC radio call. Back in the middle of the 2000s, I'm not entirely sure if it's 2005 or 2006, I keep seeing differing opinions. A late night radio show on ABC radio in Australia named Overnights, was on the subject of Yowies on this particular night. A Yowie is a cryptid-like creature that resembles the Sasquatch. In Australian folklore, it's reported to live in the Australian bush or outback. They've rarely, if ever, been seen by humans, hence why it's considered to be from folklore. It probably doesn't actually exist. But it is fun to suspend disbelief every now and again, right? Well, on this night in question, someone called into the show and gave their story which involved a yaoi. Now you tell me, is this call from a man calling himself Bongo real or fake? Good morning Bongo.
2: Oh, hello there. This is Bongo here. Yeah, I, I'm at the Happy Day Stay Retreat. Uh, Miss Annie woke me up and says that they're talking about what happened to me back in '78. That's why I'm here. Where are you exactly? H- happy Day, Happy Day Stay Retreat, like a sanitarium. Okay. I was bringing a, a a new vehicle down, brand new vehicle down from Balada, heading towards. Narrabri in 1978 in September it was 78 and heading for Tamworth then I I missed the turn off out of Narrabri to go to to Gunnedah and I kept going and I didn't know where I was going and I saw these old mileage pegs on the side of the road they'd been like painted over in those days and I thought the engraver in it was a G like for Gunadar, but in actual fact they were a C for it turned out to be Coon to Barabran. Right, okay. And about halfway along the road sort of thing I started to get a bit concerned the fuel was running pretty low and in the distance I I, I saw a what turned out to be a in those days a telecom van heading my way. So I got out and I waved him down, it was pretty late in the afternoon, not just, just before dusk it was, and anyway, I pulled up and I, he cracked the window down just a his little bit and I said look I don't know where I am, can you tell me where I am mate and, and he said yeah he said you're, you're in the middle of the do you do you know where that is, I said no never heard of it. He said, what's your problem? I said, I'm nearly out of fuel. What, where, what, can you tell me where I can get some fuel? He said, you're about equal distance from here to Coonabarum and Narrabri. It wouldn't matter. Anyway, I said, I'm nearly out of fuel. I'd never get back. Anyway, I asked him whether he was was going to Narrabri and asked him whether he could ring the NRMA or when he got there or something to bring me out some fuel as I was a member. yeah. And he said, "Oh, you won't get anyone to come out here after dark and anyway he didn't he didn't explain why, but right anyway, I, so you were you were stuck I ended there staying in this big old four wheel drive all through the night and about well, half past three quarter to four um this thing just fair started to rock and 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 all these funny weird lights and that were getting around the outside and I looked out and what looked through the window of, at me is why well, i 'm in this state today he may he he pulled the door off it off the off the hinges and he, he, this this thing like a, it it should devised de, ex, you know explanation of what it it looked like it, it was it was horrific and it it took me through the bush a fair way.
1: so it grabbed hold of you
2: and 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 we we ended up at this I, I, I suppose you'd call it a, a, a humpy sort of a thing, and, and, and this thing had this thing had a real fetish, obviously for oh real thin bow-legged, knock-kneed, white, hairy legs. He had pairs of legs hanging up, and and when he realised that I, I, I was no good to him, he he he, he took me back. He, road, Whatever it was, I assume it was a he. If it was a she, there's something wrong in the world. But uh, and, what, what,
1: and bon, I, bon I, I
2: never ever saw him again. And 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 a timber truck picked picked me up the, the next morning when it went through. And he he took me to Kurne and it wasn't long after that I they made me stay at Happy Happy Days. Happy Days Day Retreat, and I've I, I've been here ever since.
1: Bongo, that is just an amazing story.
2: And Miss Annie, and Miss Annie tells me apparently that uh, there's some idiot out there in the middle of it somewhere last week or something or something attempting fate. God, uh, There's got to be something wrong with the person. Can you give us a, a if I don't can't not pushing you too hard, uh-huh. what, what did it look like?
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> I can't
2: explain it. It was, was horrible. Pretty scary story there, Bongo, and thank you for that. Oh. And you look after yourself, okay? I'm going to pass your concerns on to Trev, who is our roving reporter, uh, Trevor Chapel and Anna Mulder, who we've got out there in the Pillager Scrub tonight. Bongo, thanks for your call, all right? You look after.
0: Oh. I'll be the first to tell you that was creepy as all hell. After some digging... There is no such thing as the Happy Days Stay Retreat in Australia. In fact, typing that into Google throws nothing back as a result. There's literally nowhere in the world called the Happy Days Stay Retreat. To me, this could be what the patients of an insane asylum call where they live as a form of slang rather than referring to it as an asylum. They just refer to it as the Happy Days Stay Retreat. Also, at one point he says his nurse heard the radio broadcast talking about yaoi's and woke him up to let him know. Would a nurse, someone who is there to care for you and care for your sanity, wake you up in the middle of the night and allow you to talk about something that is likely going to be a trigger for you? I'd probably say no on that one. It's bonkers. But I'll tell you what else is bonkers. If this is fake, if this is in fact fake, then whoever the guy playing Bongo was, then he is a terrific actor. He legitimately sounded like he was terrified. It's the end of the clip that got me. The way he starts to murmur and sound as if he's having a panic attack or nervous breakdown It sent goosebumps down my everywhere. Why do I do this shit in the dark? The Exorcism of Annalise Michelle. Anna Elizabeth Annalise Michel was a German woman born on the 21st of September 1952, and she would go on to die on the 1st of July 1976. This is a rather infamous case from within the true crime and creepy communities. Why you may ask? Well, it's because of the exorcism part. You heard that correctly. In fact, the 2005 movie The Exorcism of Emily Rose was based on Annalise's story. But why did Annalise ever have to have a story to begin with? What on earth was the reason behind her needing an exorcism? And why is she on this list? Well, you might not want to know the answer to that last question. We'll get to that a little later though. At the age of 16, Annalise had a seizure and as a result was diagnosed with psychosis caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. She would then be diagnosed with depression shortly after and would go on to receive treatment at a psychiatric hospital. Annalise then took a rather bizarre turn. She had an aversion to something that sounds weird but apparently it's true. By the time she hit 20, she had grew intolerant of various religious objects like crosses and started hearing voices to add to the mayhem that was already going on inside of her head. Despite the medication she was provided, her health continued to decline and she became suicidal. Five years of taking medication proved to be fruitless and Annalise's health did not improve at all. This led Annalise and her parents to become convinced that she was actually being possessed by a demon. This led them to the Catholic Church and appealed to them to perform an exorcism. At first, the church rejected these pleas from the family, but would later go on to agree to perform the exorcism with a catch. They ordered them to total secrecy. In the end, Annalise had a total of 67 exorcism sessions performed on her, having between one or two carried out each week on her. Each lasting for up to four hours at a time over the course of ten months. Even though everyone involved was sworn to secrecy, though, there was a recording made of at least one of the exorcism sessions. In it, you can hear Annalise talk in a voice that can only be described as demonic. Annalise speaks in German, so unless you speak it, you won't really understand a word at all. It's hard enough to hear as it is, so I'll post a link to the translated version of this in the show notes. What you're about to hear is horrific sounding, so brace yourselves, because it's pretty widely believed that this is actually 100% real and not fake at all. Here we go.
3: Wir mit in die scheiß Und zwar mit allen zu dem Scheiß-Können. Können wir oben jetzt wurscht ähm, Und dann? Und dann? Dann muss er den in bekannt geben. Wirklich? Mhm. Ah, wie, 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 wie? Was er so erschmeint? Hört ein ähm, Das <lacht> <Und die Zusammenarbeit lacht> so, dass an die Leute rankommt. Verbeert. Noch mehr. Oh, Als Maul. Noch mehr. Wie soll er machen? Et je vais te mettre Wir gehen Wir müssen wieder auf der Kanzel bringen, dass es mich Und das Volk nicht ihren Oh, ja. das ist Ja! Okay, dem, der muss im Volk mal Get that. That's
1: pretty
3: harrowing.
0: Some of the visceral sounds she makes sound like it would genuinely hurt after a short while. So if she was just doing this, it's hard to imagine that she would have been able to keep this up for the entire duration of the recording. I'm not translating the whole thing. There will be a link in the show notes, as I've said. But I'm gonna cherry pick a couple of things that she said. At one point, the priest asks Annalise to tell him more. Eventually, She replies by saying, there must be obedience to the Pope. The pastors must preach again from the pulpit that I exist and not mislead the people.
3: The priest then asks,
0: That the devil exists, no? No! Annalise replies with, Yes, that must be made known to the people. In response, the priest starts to recite the Lord's Prayer and then commands her to tell him more in the name of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Again, the translation is almost as harrowing as the actual recording. Whatever was, quote unquote, possessing Annalise made her voice quite clearly become a far cry from what her natural voice was. Even without ever hearing Annalise's actual voice before, you can almost guarantee that her real voice was lost in amongst the events of the exorcisms. Unfortunately, this story doesn't have a happy ending. On July 1st, 1976, Annelise would pass away in her home. The autopsy that followed stated that her death was the result of malnutrition and dehydration. She was in a near-starved state for almost an entire year while the exorcisms were performed, with her only keeping on any nutrients in tiny amounts. At the time of her death, Annelise weighed a mere 30 kilograms, that's 68 pounds or 4 stone 10 pounds. With her weight that low, it's a wonder how she survived for as long as she did. Her bones were broken in her knees due to her having to continuously genuflect, that's the act of bending down on one knee. She couldn't move without the help of others. And also was suffering from pneumonia. That all sounds atrocious and at the risk of sounding a bit too dark. Maybe death was a better sentence for her over a life of constant exorcisms. Surely at some point during the ten straight months of up to four hour exorcisms someone had to think that maybe this wasn't working purely in a bid to spare Annalise the pain towards the end of her life. Due to her death and Lisa's parents, and the two priests who Greenlet had performed the exorcisms, Ernst Alt and Arnold Renz, were charged with negligent homicide. They would all go on to be found guilty of manslaughter, would be sentenced to six months in jail, which would later be suspended, and received three years of probation. That is absolutely nothing in exchange for a life especially when considering that the case was just a misidentification of mental illness. That's according to author John M. Duffy. This remains one of the most haunting pieces of audio to date and we can only hope that Anne-Lise eventually found peace after the horrendous circumstances in the months leading up to her death. The murder of Kyle Dinkheller. Kyle Dinkheller was a deputy of the Lawrence County Sheriff's Office in Georgia, USA. On January 12th, 1998, Kyle clocked a Toyota pickup truck speeding near Dudley, Georgia at about 98 miles per hour. Of course, he pulled the truck over. What appeared to be at first just a routine traffic stop turned into sheer horror mere moments later. The driver and Kyle both exited their vehicles and exchanged greetings. However, this would suddenly turn hostile as the driver, a man named Andrew Howard Brannon, placed both of his hands into both of his pockets. Following procedure, Kyle told Brannon to remove them and keep them in plain sight. Brannan then became rather belligerent and began yelling at Deputy Kyle, what was he yelling? He was screaming at him, telling him to shoot him, before moving into the middle of the road and started waving his arms and dancing around. Kyle used this opportunity to radio dispatch for backup all the while telling Brannon to stop what he was doing. Upon seeing Kyle using his radio, Brannan aggressively ran towards Kyle, sending Kyle backwards in retreat while brandishing his truncheon baton and ordered Brannon to stop. At one point, Brannan shouts that he's a quote, goddamn, Vietnam combat veteran. Kyle was telling brannon to stop and stay still but Brannon instead walked back to his truck, leant inside, reached under his driver's seat, and pulled out an Ivor Johnson M1 carbine. Kyle tried to put as much distance between himself and the gun-wielding Brannon, and barked commands at Brannon for about 40 seconds before the self-professed Vietnam vet stepped away from the truck, aimed, and fired at Kyle. Kyle then fired a shot of his own, which is believed to have been a warning shot. With all of his subsequent shots, however, Kyle missed and was forced to reload his own weapon. This was Brannon's opportunity now. He ran towards Kyle and opened fire, bullets striking Kyle in his arms and his legs. Brannon then reloaded as Kyle tried to make his way around the cruiser to safety, all the while pleading for his life. At this point, Brannon appears to retreat back to his truck before Kyle fires another shot at him. This made Brannon see red and he advanced towards Kyle, fired at him again and actually hit him numerous more times. Kyle managed to hit Brannon once, firing a shot into his stomach before he himself was disabled by the shots. The last part is, simply put, awful. Kyle had been shot nine times, but that wasn't enough for Brannan. He took aim one final time, can be heard saying the words, Die, fucker, before pulling the trigger and the bullet striking Kyle in his right eye. Brannan would then flee the scene. You're about to hear this play out. Again, this is upsetting, but it's reality. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned.
4: Driver, step back here to me. Come on back here for me. Come on back. How you doing today? Come on back here, keep your hands out of your pocket. Keep your hands out of your pocket, sir. sir. Oh, come here, mirror, 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 mirror. sir. Come here. Thirty-seven, radio ten seventy-eight. Come here, sir. sir get oh, back, are you calling, sir. 13? Get back now. Get back. Oh, wow. Get back, sir, back. Doing, sir. Get back now. No. Get back. Fuck you, sir. Get back. No. I'm down no. now. Get back, sir. Sir, man. get back. Sir, I am a goddamn Vietnam combat restaurant, step back. and I am not taking fuck, fuck you! Back. Sir, step back now!
1: Get
4: back! You, get back! Man. Get back now!
1: 1078,
4: right up, 1018. Fuck Sir, you. step back now! Sir, get back now! 16. Sir, Sir, get back! Get out of the car now! Sir, get out of the car! I am doing my life. life. Get back here now! Get to your vehicle. Put the gun down. Well, I got down the gun. I need help. Put the gun down. Put it down now. Put the gun down. Drop the gun now.
0: Cannon was arrested the next morning, and he went quietly, and he actually told investigating authorities that, quote-unquote, they can hang me. Well, he didn't get that wish. On January 28th, 2000, he was convicted of the murder of Deputy Kyle Wayne Dinkella and was sentenced to death. On the 2nd of January 2015, the Georgia Department of Corrections set a date for his execution. January 13th on that date Andrew Howard Brannan was executed via lethal injection. I think we can all agree that what we have just heard on that last entry was horrifying to say the least and earlier when I said that the Aztec death whistle was the sound of death this was the sound of death. Clawing and pleading For his life, and all for doing his job. What a waste. The Kevin Cosgrove 911 call. In this episode, I'm going to leave you with something that's quite frankly haunting. September the 11th, 2001. A day that will never be forgotten by anyone old enough to remember the day. The day that Al-Qaeda terrorists decided to hijack four passenger planes. Two hit the World Trade Centers, one hit the Pentagon, and one crash-landed in a field after the passengers of the latter plane fought back, saving countless more lives at the expense of their own. That one was being aimed at Washington DC, though whether or not it was aiming for the White House or the US Capitol building is up for debate. However, that flight's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a man named Kevin Michael Cosgrove. He was the vice president of Aon Corporation. Aeon provides professional services ranging from risk to retirement to health solutions. The morning of September the 11th 2001 was just like any other for everyone in the World Trade Center. That was until 9.02 am when flight 175 crashed into the south face of the south tower between floors 77 and 85. This was only 16 minutes and 17 seconds after flight 11 had hit the north face of the north tower between the floors of 93 and 99. Kevin was on the 105th floor of the South Tower. Kevin has gone down in infamy due to his 911 call. You can obviously only imagine what it must have been like to be a 911 operator on that day. This call only highlights why. It's absolutely spine chilling. 3,000 calls flooded the 911 system in the first 18 minutes of the terror attack, and more than 57,000 calls came into 911 in the 24 hours following the first plane hitting the North Tower. Of these calls, only 130 came from within the towers themselves. We cannot commend the 911 operators enough here, as they were thrust into a situation in which they had received basically no training for, They improvised a lot of their answers, and yet they still continued to pick up their phones and attempted to give any sort of help that they could. We can all feel for these operators, but none more so than the operator that fielded the call from Kevin Michael Cosgrove. In his call at 911, Kevin tells the operator that he's stuck in the northwest corner of the 105th floor, overlooking the World Financial Center. His call got through to 9 at 9.54 a.m. For anyone that knows the timeline of events, you know what's about to come. If not, then it's time to prepare yourselves. He tells the operator that he's calling from the office of Jonathan Ostaru and that he was with two other people. He also says, my wife thinks I'm all right. I called and said I was leaving the building and then bang. In the end, he's describing where he and his two companions are when a loud rumbling sound can be heard. What happens next is horrifying. And while I was making notes for this episode, all alone in a dark room, tears began to fill my eyes. This is genuinely haunting. Again, this audio is not for the faint hearted.
1: I can't go with the notifications made. That's okay. right. Sir, what's the telephone number waiting for us to pick up? What's the telephone number The your phone You can do A.C. You can do A.C. 4-4-1-26-23. 23 4 It's okay. okay. uh, on hundred fifth corner, northwest right. corner, right? Right. At number two, we're Right. Lady, two of in this office. We're not ready to die, but it's getting bad. Mm-hmm. I want to ask her. We're to out of I'm trying to make her where you are. Oh, please, i to find a flyer. All um, right, oh, it's a 15. 15- to a call, p- a Let me talk to He's on the call. Where is line. Let me talk to him. Where is his fire, sir? Oh. Uh, uh, it was smoke, moon board, 105, two All right, sit tight, we'll get to you as soon as we can. are staying up the smoke, moon board, man? That's all we can do. We, 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 where are you? What's where are you guys up to? We're getting there, we're getting there. man? I got one, two. I understand that, sir. We're on the way. 100th morning, Charlie, I not to do Go back to him. Go back to him. Go to to John you a-R-U. A-R-U? Right. That's the your office, you're there. There's three of us in here. O-F-T-A-R-U. O-F-T-A-R-U. Good day to, day to, day to day. Hello? Hello? We're looking at oil, we're looking at financial center. To do this, to break your windows. Oh God! Ah!
0: Kevin's remains were found amongst the rubble and he was buried on September the 22nd, 2001 at the St. Patrick Catholic Cemetery in Huntington, New York. He died at the age of 46 and is survived by his wife Wendy and their three children. Wendy actually had to testify during the punishment phase of Zacharias Moussaoui, a French citizen who was deeply involved in the 9-11 attacks without actually being one of the hijackers. And there, she had to sit through the 911 call, and you can only imagine what she must have been going through, especially when you hear Kevin say, we're not ready to die. Kevin's eldest son, who was 12 at the time of the attacks, suffered academically, developed anger issues, and ended up getting himself in trouble with the law on a number of occasions. Kevin and Wendy's middle child, who was 10 at the time of the attacks, began to self-harm herself, something which required therapy for her to overcome. Countless lives ruined in domino effects because of senseless and truly warped ideals and views. If you ever find yourself at the National 9-11 Memorial, make your way to the South Pool and find panel S-60. There, you'll find Kevin's name memorialized Give him, and the rest of the names on those panels, a few moments of your time from us here at Comfort and Death and Darkness. They're gone, but they will never, ever, be forgotten. And that does it for this episode of Comfort and Death and Darkness. I quite like this format actually, I might try it again sometime. Maybe I'll get Charlie to do one when I'm not here. We'll have to see. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes. And also Stitcher, and also Podchaser, and you know what? Just go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash death. There'll be links to everything there. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ComfortAndDD. On Instagram, at ComfortAndDeathAndDarkness. And be sure to give us a like on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash cdadpodcast. Actually, while I'm on it, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts, we're literally available on everything. Except Pandora, it's not available in the UK yet. And I'd like to take this opportunity to quickly ask for emails. Send in your answers to this question. What is the creepiest thing that has ever happened to you? Send in your response to that to cdadpodcast at gmail.com and we will read it out on the show. I have one email ready to go, but I'm going to save that for when I'm back with Charlie. In the meantime, though, thank you all for listening and good
1: night.